When we first started the company, uh, we, we kind of went into the business and we said, it is our mission and our purpose to enhance the quality of life of the people that we serve. And that's how we have to measure ourselves day in and day out. The staff that you have at 300 doors is is not necessarily the staff you're going to have at 600 or the staff you're going to have at 900 or the staff you're going to have at 1200 because that skill set has to continue to evolve. That continues to grow as well as you scale. One of our core values is you have to be driven to be 1% better every single day because if you don't, at some point, the business is going to leave you behind, and we do not want to ever see our staff have that happen. I've done a lot of these shows. I haven't heard a lot of folks reference personal relationships with judges, officials, municipality office holders, et cetera, as being a strategic advantage. You reference that. Tell me more about that. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Moyla, and today I am talking to Mike Mefford from Bridgestream Property Management. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jordan. I'm uh, really excited to be here. Yeah, excited to jam, hear a little bit more about your background, but why don't we start with some stats on the company today? What does the management company look like as of right now? Uh, right now, we're at about 1,400 units um, just in the greater Dayton market. And how old is the company? About three years. So we've had uh, massive growth in a very short period of time. Got it. Okay. And walk me through that. Did you land door one or did you acquire a first set of doors? Yeah. Great, great question. We actually started by uh, acquiring a small uh, property management company that had about 80 units under management and a few HOAs. And from there, we grew it in about six months from 80 units to 400 or so. And we had an opportunity to buy another property management company in the Dayton market that had about 600 units under management. Uh, so we acquired them, and then we've just continued to add more doors organically uh, from there. And then a few other smaller uh, PM companies that were under 100 units just decided to dissolve and also kind of wrap their uh, units into our company as well. So 680 of the 1,400 were, were came via paid acquisition, is that correct? Correct. Correct. Okay, got it. So yeah, that is a fast pace of growth. And I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is not just how to get the doors, but also managing at that level of velocity. The question that comes to mind is how you were able to manage doing the managing at that level of scale and that quickly. Did you have some leadership chops or corporate experience previously that kind of informed how to grow an organization? Yeah, so I actually started my career with uh, Speedway convenience stores and kind of took a number of different positions. But uh, started in, in management and worked my way through that organization. Uh, from there, went into uh, being a national sales manager for a manufacturing company. Uh, had some uh, real estate experience as a VP of acquisitions and dispositions before actually getting into starting uh, Bridgestream Property Management. Got it. Okay. So this wasn't a total jump, yeah. managing people, having direct reports. Correct. Correct. What does the management team structure look like right now? So right now, I, I, I am kind of our CFO, uh, CEO uh, operator, and then my partner, Jason Brower, is kind of our chief operations officer. And then we've got a team of uh, five property managers underneath us that manage pods of you know, roughly uh, 300 or so units each. Got it. Okay. So no like formal middle management with the PMs are kind of acting. Correct. And we're, we're actively looking at exploring uh, different opportunities because what you find is when you don't have layers underneath you, you end up still being actively involved in the business. So 
that's kind of a very active, ongoing discussion right now as we start start thinking about what is you know the organization structure look like in five years and where our growth plans take us. Mm. So as you've been growing, talk to me about the the finance piece specifically, profitability, et cetera. Where are you out on that journey of navigating towards actually producing cash flow? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. We've been very fortunate and very blessed to be able to uh, monetize the business pretty quickly uh, from the onset, specifically through uh, you know early adoption of ancillary fees and some of the things that uh, were untraditional that we had learned until we started joining with NARPM and, and and meeting with you know the different companies here and understanding the opportunities to drive your revenue. Um, we operated very lean and mean for a number of years, so. We were able to stay profitable with uh, my partner, Jason, and I doing a lot of that work ourselves. Um, so we were heavily involved in the operations side uh, at the onset. And we're slowly, as each month goes by, uh, kind of giving away a little bit more and more of those responsibilities to our staff. Um, so I would actually say that even though we've continued to grow and add more and more doors, the profitability hasn't changed because we've just added, it's a lot of that more capacity from a labor standpoint uh, to remove all of that workload that we were doing on a day in and day out basis. So we can really focus more on the big picture, working on the business versus in it. What is your near term strategic focus? Like 2024, what will be some big initiatives you'll try and lean on? You know, uh, it, it was funny. We, we talked uh, a couple of days ago, Jordan. Uh, it, it's really implementing uh, your platform and Lead Simple uh, into our whole operation and building out our international uh, team. Uh, and Lead Simple has just been instrumental in that, and, and we're just scratching the surface of what we can do from a workflow automation, efficiency, um, and really maximizing uh, that talent pool to build up more capacity without increasing costs substantially by doing so. I mean, what's in your mind's eye? If you could, like visualize yourself at the end of 2024, what have you effectuated? Like, how would how would you know that it worked aside from the fact that everybody has a software login? I. Uh, that's a really good question. To answer that, I, I would say that we'll know from an owner satisfaction standpoint. Uh, our owners still all have our contact information. And I'm hearing about it constantly. <laughs> if things are not going the way that they expect, um, what we found even in a very short period of time is by being able to measure uh, and have everything clearly laid out from a from a workflow standpoint, that more and more work is getting done with less and less questions. And because we can build all of the templates for it, uh, we're seeing that just, we're seeing the quality of that work even increase from where we were, you know, six months or a year ago. Okay. So that's one initiative is having that structural and streamline set up in place. You mentioned that growth has not been an issue. Clearly mm -hmm. that makes sense. Um, what about the quality of the doors? What are you doing in terms of qualifying? What do you not manage? Uh, yeah, so we really try to stay away from the uh, C minus D plus areas, areas of higher crime. Um, I would tell you that, especially from a property management standpoint, you have to be very careful in those areas. Taking on any uh, multifamily, uh, the multifamily uh, resident and multifam or multifamily owner in those areas is a little bit more challenging to manage. And so you're either going to have to increase your fees substantially to offset all of the additional labor that's going to go into it. Uh, or you just have to stay away from it altogether. We're kind of leaning towards uh, shying away from a lot of those type of properties. Problems staying in the uh, multifamily space when you're in more of the A and B class areas. And we'll manage any multifamily from, you know, duplex all the way to our largest is a 63 unit uh, complex. Uh, but I mean, really the, the bread and butter and where the, the most, your highest margins are on the single family side. You can have an A or a D class property. You can have an A or a D class owner. How do you, what do you suss out when you're talking to an owner, whether or not this is a person you want to work with? 
We're really big on trying to set that foundation at the front end with the owner. What we have found through our experiences, the more that that owner wants to be involved, the more challenging it's going to be to work with that owner. And the more we're going to butt heads on what is the expectation moving forward. Uh, Oftentimes, it just adds that extra layer of complexity when you're trying to solve any challenge, figure out how to handle anything. Uh, We really talk on the front end about, hey, you're hiring us to be your expert. Like we are the property management expert in the area, no different than your, you know, financial advisor is going to be on your finances. You're not picking every single stock that your financial advisor is going to put into your portfolio. You have to look at us from that same ilk and that regard in managing your property and trying to maximize the value of your asset for a long-term appreciation uh cash on cash return, et cetera. That, that's what we're here for. And we really try to stress that and emphasize that to the owner. Too often we've tried, especially in the beginning, uh, and I would say that to anyone that's kind of starting a property management company, you want to say yes to everything because you're just so hungry to get people in the front door. And I would really challenge that a little bit. That was some of the mistakes that we made when we first started is we just wanted to do be everything for everyone. And what you find is when an owner wants to, to get that involved and they're trying to they don't agree with the price that you want to charge from a maintenance perspective. They want you to go get four other quotes. Well, all it did was just take, you know, two, three more weeks for that job to actually start. They're not thinking about the lost revenue from uh, not having that unit rented in that time period. They typically can't find it much cheaper. That contractor, really, the quality of work just goes way down. So we're we've now really transitioned to a point where, hey, this is our contractors that we use. This is the price. If you want to move forward, great. If not, you can source your own, but you're going to be on your own to do it. And and it was a hard pill for us to swallow because we just want to be accommodating to our owner. But sometimes you have to protect the owner from themselves. Uh, they'll make their own mistakes. And, and we tell our owners that like sometimes like you've hired me to protect you from your emotions where sometimes you're going to want to do things that I that my experience and our experience has taught us, hey, don't go down this road. Can you tell me the story about integrating the 600 units with the 400 units? If I got those numbers correctly, you were around 400 units when you made a 600 acquisition. That's a a big quantity to ingest. How did that go? Uh, Terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely terrible. Uh, We didn't know. We didn't know at that time. And we acquired that company. And right off the bat, we lost every single one of their staff in a period of a couple weeks, except for- Unplanned. 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 The uh, previous owner uh, had some health issues. So from a transition standpoint, they weren't around to assist at all from a help. And we only had one of their staff actually stick around. He was their finance guy. And so that was a huge undertaking for us. Uh, and you, I mean, we, we you just really buckle down at that point. I mean, Jason and I both, we come uh, from athletic backgrounds and you know that you just you, you don't complain. Life is what it is. You figure out how are you going to deal with it. And you just move forward. Um, and that's kind of what we had to do. So we had to kind of build everything from that ground up. And I, I still remember when we sat down and went through a mass hiring spree, like we were <laughs> opening a retail store for the first time, uh, trying to build all of that out and just getting people in to help us handle the volume of everything that we had to do. So it was a lot of build out uh, right from the get go uh, and a lot of really good lessons learned <laughs> along the way. <laughs> Incredible. Vast majority of the staff, not only are you requiring 600 units, but the vast majority of the staff quits within a couple of weeks. That's correct. And we we had transitioned at that point. Uh, we were with the rent manager and to make it easier for all of the owners of the new company 
because we were still relatively new, we transitioned and agreed to go from rent manager to Appfolio. So at that point, we were also learning a brand new software Wow! Um, without any real boys to help us along the way. So uh, wow. we, were, we were very blessed that Appfolio kind of hopped right in and, and was there to, to support us through that entire endeavor. And how long did it take for you to actually for that to feel stable? I would say it took us probably a good six months to a year before that really felt uh, stable. We we really just dove right into all of the different uh, automations that Affolio had to offer. And because we didn't know any other way, we had no employee to tell us what you should or shouldn't do. So we just started uh, learning Affolio from the ground level with their support and their team. And through that, we were actually able to eliminate quite a bit of the physical work that was being done by the staff that we had. It was pretty old, old school. Very, very old school. Okay. So, I mean, at Folios, I mean, stuff like smart bill entry with their AI technology was game changing and just being able to, you know, click a button and pay all your bills directly through Appfolio. I mean, they were, they were writing paper checks and, and going on to their bank and doing online bill pay. And they were very, very old school and just didn't embrace really any technology to automation. And to be honest, we were very fortunate coming from sales backgrounds and we were real estate investors before we acquired our first company, K&E Property Management. That was the 80 unit company. And so we really understood real estate investment and understood how owners wanted to think and wanted to see their company. And we knew how to operate based off of that because that's how we operated our own stuff. But we had no clue in terms of property management software, systems, workflows, all of the different vendors and software available to assist you. I mean, we we kind of figured it out from the get-go uh, as ourselves, like one question at a time, one one software piece at a time. How did you structure the deals with those two acquisitions? Both of them, the first two were just uh, SBA loans. Um, so we we sat down and, and talked with both of them and asked them, you know, what are you looking for and and what uh, what are you willing to get out of this? And you just kind of come to an agreement. So they both went through consultants or, or salespeople that will sell or brokers, I think, mm-hmm. that sell small businesses. And uh, so they put the valuations on the company. We underwrote them. I mean, my background was in uh, financial underwriting. Uh, so I got very, very accustomed to that. So, I mean, the numbers made sense for us and uh, we were able to strike the deal. I mean, coincidentally, the price per door for the uh, small 80 units was substantially more than the price per door for the 600 units, which was fascinating. So you, you can't really put one size fits all if you were ever to ask somebody, hey, what would you typically pay for a property management company? I don't know. What do they want first? And then how does it fit into your uh, overall, you know, your your overall model and your system and how you're going to incorporate them? What did unit churn look like after the two acquisitions? Uh, none really. Uh, well, the, the 80 unit uh, portfolio that we purchased within six months, the owner got an offer too good to be true. Uh, and they owned about 30 units of that. And so within six months, they sold. But we were very fortunate. We had great relationships with them and we were able to uh, be a part of all of that. And then on the 600 unit side, uh, there was very little. Um, I, would, I would say of the 600 even units. Even with all the staff quitting. Even with all the staff quitting. Uh, it really went to show you like there was there were some operational um, concerns that they had in, with the existing uh, thing or the existing staff in place. Uh, what we were able to do, and this was right during the middle of COVID, we we got re- we had really great relationships with our attorneys and with uh, a lot of the judges in the area just from being in Dayton for so long. So we really understood how to use the law to our advantage. So our collections rate during that time period was at an all time high. We had great relationships with all of the different governmental assistance agencies. So any tenant that ever fell behind, we had the context to get them right in place. Hey, we're going to help you get caught up through this. 
helping the tenants understand the uh, concerns and what their consequences would be if they didn't pay their rent. We had the ways to be able to evict them. Ohio was a very landlord-friendly state even through the uh, COVID time period. So I think that was one uh, area that really gave our owners a lot of peace and comfort uh, was knowing that the their rent was really coming in at a high level, higher than it ever had. Um, and then we also had internal maintenance. So we were able to turn uh, units really, really quickly, which they weren't typically used to. It, it could take that company before us acquiring them anywhere from three to six months to turn a unit. <laughs> Uh, and now we're getting them estimates within a week and turning it within a month. Um, and that, that was a huge deal for the owner. So our churn was very, very little uh, from that regard. What we've kind of graduated into fighting as we've moved forward is those owners were also very, very catered to uh, from a cost perspective on maintenance, where maintenance was a pass-through and the property management company had hired someone on site uh, or on staff for 20 bucks an hour, and they just passed that cost right through to the owner. <laughs> whenever they do work. So they're doing work at $20 an hour, and that's just not feasible to do that kind of work. So as they've had to readjust to what really new maintenance costs are, and there's a lot of deferred maintenance in the portfolio where, you know, if a property turned, all they ever did was I'll go in and do paint blinds, you know, change a furnace filter, smoke detectors, and I'm putting it back on the market and we'll, we'll do some carpet cleaning. So you just had a lot of deferred maintenance through the years. Well, now we've really had to look at the properties with the owner and we really try to help them think, Okay, we're gonna go and we're gonna spend you know twelve grand to upgrade your your house, uh, but that twelve grand in spend is gonna add thirty thousand in value, and it's gonna be able to allow us to increase your rents by three hundred dollars a month. So some owners that are really financial savvy, that makes a ton of sense to them. Others that don't have a lot of capital set aside to be prepared for something like that is just complete sticker shock, and they didn't know how to handle. So um, sometimes I, I joke with our staff that I'm playing almost uh, psychologist with some of our owners and helping them. You know, calm down. It's going to be okay. Uh, this is a bump in the road. I'm going to show you that there's a lot of positives uh, from this as well. I mean, as a real estate investor, uh, on the flip side, you have to really be prepared that, you know, real estate investing is not just smooth sailing. It's not this easy, hey, I'm going to buy this and it's going to make me this set amount every single month. I mean, there's going to be great times. There's going to be, you know, some really challenging situations that you deal with. But if you can stick through it, the overall long-term appreciation that you get from real estate really, it, it just makes it such a wonderful uh, asset class to invest in. What's the population of Dayton roughly? About 140,000 or so. So you're managing 1,400 units and 140,000, about, about 1%. I mean, all of those aren't rentals. I mean, that's a fairly high on a percentage basis, right? Mm -hmm. that's a, yes. It feels like a lot of penetration. Yes, that's really okay. So you're definitely in a small local market, and you have an outsized presence. I've done a lot of these shows. I haven't heard a lot of folks reference personal relationships with judges, officials, municipality office holders, et cetera, as being a strategic advantage. You reference that. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So what we're really big on is you always want to understand what the law is, how are they going to, what, what are they going to be looking for uh, for both sides? So the more information that you have, the better that you can put your case together and be prepared to handle different situations that arise. And these relationships, maybe in a town of 140,000, it's more feasible to get to know people. That seems kind of like a pipe dream in LA or New York City, but yeah. how exactly, what did that look like to cultivate relationships there? You know, it, it was interesting that that was really just from our, our formal, uh, former lifestyles uh, in, in different companies that we worked with and a lot through just uh, golfing, <laughs> as simple as it sounds. I mean, it's more of a recreational side of things, but 
uh, we play golf with with quite a bit of them uh, through our local country club, uh, and that's actually where Jason and I met as well. So we were just very fortunate and very blessed as we just continued to have a a strong presence from a relational standpoint in the community. That then you start to leverage those relationships uh, to different advantages that you can figure out how how do you maximize it, and it's it's not any unfair treatment or anything like this. If we go to a local municipality and we knew that judge, I mean, he'd excuse himself from the case, but it didn't mean that we wouldn't have the ability to talk with them and say, hey, with this case, how is this going to be looked at by the court? What does the paperwork need to look like? How do we need to present our case in a way that's going to put our client in the best position to succeed? So beyond just the non-standard stuff, like like the real, real practical mm-hmm. frontline realities of how these things actually play out. You just have like more context there. Correct. And that, and like I said, that helped us so much during COVID where I think a lot of other landlords in our market were not evicting and then we're just dealing with the resident not paying. We had all of that information on the front end for how to communicate with the resident, um, how to present our case so that we were still able to evict if needed uh, during that time period. How were your inspections impacted during COVID? We didn't do inspections during COVID. <laughs> Couldn't do it. Just cut it off. Had to. I mean, it, and it was it was tough for us to do, um, but you have to you have to adapt to the times. What about staff churn? Uh, once we once we lost the initial staff at Vic Green, we had to go through kind of a survival mode where we had to hire five six people within a matter of uh, thirty days. Um, and you, it, it's funny when you come from the traditional business sense and any book that you're going to read, it's and or any guru that you're going to talk to, they're going to say you. You have to hire slow and, and fire fast. Uh, we, we, we hear that all the time. And, you know, when you're in survival mode, you, you just throw all that out the window and you're, you're just trying to bring people in that can help you sustain as you move forward. And then when you factor that in with as quickly as we grew, uh, I was just having this conversation with someone else the other day, you, the staff that you have at 300 doors is, is not necessarily the staff you're going to have at 600 or the staff you're going to have at 900 or the staff you're going to have at 1200 because that skill set has to continue to evolve because the expectation level of service and the efficiency that is needed to continue to operate at and the, the knowledge, that continues to grow as well as you scale. And so we talk to our staff all the time about how you have to be, one of our core values is you have to be driven to be 1% better every single day because if you don't, at some point the business is going to leave you behind and we do not want to ever see our staff have that happen. But unfortunately, you know, some of those people that started with us that we hired during that kind of initial spree, they just didn't progress as we move forward. And as we grew to that next level, um, they didn't have the skill sets uh, needed for it. So, I mean, there are some changes that had to be made there. What is it that you're moving forward and towards now? 1,400 units, growing fast, profitable. What is what is the scope and scale of your ambition now? Yeah, so our... Our staff went from uh, really taking a lot of orders and, and, and Jason and I kind of being the, that, that uh, professional real estate investor and be able to provide that level of experience from a property management standpoint, from a maintenance perspective, financial perspective, answering all of those owners' phone calls, helping them make strategic decisions about their portfolios. And now we're spending a lot of time with our property management team, really training them and teaching them up on all of that same uh, skill set base so that they can be the ones that as they're working directly with the owners that are answering those questions, offering that advice and providing that guidance and what the path forward is for each and every owner. So it's it's transitioning more and more of that knowledge to them so we can step out of that day-to-day more and more. Hmm. I've started a handful of businesses and I've had partners in each of them. Some of the peak stress for me in my career has been partner-related. Not all of it, mm-hmm. but some of it for sure. 
it takes a lot of effort to really stay on the same page and to stay in sync. How do you handle that dynamic with your partner, Jason? Yeah, um, Jason and I are are extremely blessed that there is a different level of respect uh, through the relationship that we've had through the years. And people would normally say all the time that uh, be really careful going into business with friends or family. Jason and I met actually uh, playing golf together um, when we were uh, young and single, and that's all we had to do is, I mean, play. We we, we got together and, and and built our relationship that way. Jason, even before business, was always kind of like a big brother to me, and and our relationship is still. Uh, very similar to that where um, – and I, I think that underlying respect that we've always had for one another to know that I know no matter what you know path I take, he's always going to be there to protect me and look out for me mm. um, and, and vice versa back and forth. And it's been that dynamic and true care and compassion uh, and respect on the back end that allows us to – even when we don't agree, uh, we we can really have that – understanding respect for their position on the other side so that we can kind of come out the other end. And, and we talk all the time, like at some point, like a final decision has to be made. Like it can't be, if we're at odds with one another, I always recommend if you're in a partnership with somebody that one person is going to be the person that makes the final call mm. and and the other party has to be okay with that. And Jason and I kind of set up from the get go of like, Hey, listen, I'm, we're going to bitter or we're going to, we're going to, you know, go back and forth on a topic or a strategy. But at the end of the day, like if we can't come to a unanimous agreement, you know, Jason, you're ultimately going to make that decision for the organization. I'm going to respect it. And I'm going to support it as we move forward. And and I think you have to do something like that, especially when you're going to run into stalemates, because there there are times where you just won't always agree. It's an inevitability, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Having grown as quick as you did, do you ever think about a flip? Do you ever think about exiting the business? I don't think so. To us, uh, it's been such a fun, exciting ride that uh, that's actually the exact opposite of where we want to go. I mean, we just talked to our staff about our five-year plan, which is 5,000 units in the next five years between uh, the Dayton market, Cincinnati market, uh, Toledo, Cleveland, Indianapolis, maybe Columbus, uh, just this the surrounding areas close to the, the Dayton market as well. So we've got that. Um, we just actually took our maintenance company and we merged it with a local general contractor to add more scale and capacity on that side to not only support us at the Bridgestream side, but also to support other uh, small investors and landlords and property management companies in the Dayton market as well. Um, so we're, we're just kind of getting started and, and really excited to see where it goes. 5,000 units <clears throat> in a series of smaller markets. Columbus isn't smaller, but yeah, it's a really interesting strategy, what do you experience as being different about working in a smaller market? I mean, I, for starters, I would tell you the competition. Um, and that's probably one of the things that would honestly keep us away from Columbus, at least from the, the short term or in the short term is just there's so much really, really strong competition. Uh, you get a lot of the big players that go right into those markets um, and, and, and build out that, that model. So it's just a lot harder to penetrate. In the smaller market, uh, we've just found that there's not nearly as much competition, and, and so it's easier to scale and grow faster without all of that that risk on the back end. What did the competitive landscape look like when you were first starting? How, how many other management companies do you think are in the market? Oh, I, I'd say when we started in Dayton, there's probably you know five or six other uh, reputable uh, property management companies, and we I've one of the ones that was reputable we bought, which was the 600-unit uh, acquisition. So there, there's only you know four or five others that are that are really competition. And 
I know a couple of those have owners that are towards the end of their, I mean, they're, they're ready to maybe move on to the next thing in life. And we, we kind of have relationships with them. So we hope that uh, the opportunity uh, presents itself where, you know, we'll, we'll engage with them in discussions and, and, you know, absorb them into the portfolio as well. How do you position your services to create differentiation? I know it's a small market, but what does that positioning look like for you? Yeah. So we talk with our owners all the time that, you know, at, at Bridgestream, like what we, what we really differentiate on is it's our size and our scale and the efficiencies that come with that. So you're getting big company with processes, systems, efficiencies, allows you to reduce your costs, but then you're getting in that single point of contact with one property manager that you're coming to with any and all problems that you have, but then a support team around them so they can still call into the office and talk to our maintenance coordinators and our maintenance department and our accounting department. They can get to a lot of different people, but they have one point of contact that'll solve all their problems for them. That's very specialized because we break it out into submarkets in Dayton. So we have a property manager that only handles like the northwest quadrant of Dayton. And then we have another property manager that manages like the south quadrant of Dayton uh, and so on and so forth. So we we really can then say, hey, we're managing all of Dayton, but the property manager that's your expert that you're working with day in and day out, all they handle is this small area of Dayton. So they are that submarket expert hmm. uh, compared to what most do where they're spread all across and they're going to have a little bit of knowledge all throughout. Um, and then we're just huge into technology and and constantly embracing the the changes that are out there, um, which just continue to add more scale, uh, quality, capacity uh, into our operation that most can't. Um, most of the property management companies in Dayton haven't really taken the time to understand all that's out there from an ancillary service standpoint, software standpoint, um, just partners that you can have in the industry to help grow forward. Uh, and so they don't have the revenue and the margins to keep adding the staff and the capacity that we're able to add to offer that higher end service. Yeah, that's a very interesting way to think about it. Some people hear ancillary services and they're thinking, well, people are paying more. The way you're positioning, and this very much resonates with me, is if you take that revenue maximization and you pump it back into the business, because mm -hmm. the reality is that profits and distributions are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Say it again, profits and distributions <laughs> are not the same thing. Looks similar, feels similar, but profit can be retained earnings. Mm -hmm. You can pump it back into the business. Absolutely. In order to provide a higher quality service. And that can create its own kind of flywheel. I love that you're articulating that. Um, when you think about how the offering may evolve over time, like clearly you've done some of that, where else will the offering itself shift and grow in the next coming years? I... We haven't even scratched the surface yet with preventative maintenance uh, from an ancillary side. So that, that is one thing we've definitely wanted to explore more of uh, to assist from an ownership standpoint. Uh, we want to offer a lot more from a CapEx strategic planning perspective. Uh, most of our owners have no idea how old their furnaces and HVAC systems are, their roofs, uh, what the interiors of their, their homes look like, what type of equity that they have in their home. Uh, we want to help them kind of get to that next level of really thinking about not just, you know, what is the cash flow that this investment is spinning off, but what's that return on your equity look like? Uh, what is your strategy that you're trying to achieve from a, from an investment standpoint uh, for the next, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And so as we think about what that uh, service offering, how it evolves over time, as we continue to build up our property management team to better understand investment strategy, then pouring that back to the owner so that they're able to make the best possible financial decisions that they can make. Hmm. How would you describe the company's culture and your leadership style personally? Yeah. Uh, so our, our company culture is a lot of our 
uh, core values of the organization are are built upon kind of athletic principles. So driven to be one percent better every day, to be disciplined, to em- to embrace uh, you know challenges and and uncertainty. Extreme ownership. We don't ever blame and complain and defend. We just take extreme ownership of a situation. Uh, teamwork. You know your your value to the team is how much you lift up everybody else around you. You can be average at what you do, but if you make everybody else great, you add such value to the organization. We talk about that. Like the lone wolf that's the absolute superstar but brings everybody's morale down isn't going to stay with us. And we've had we've had some really good people that were phenomenal property managers that didn't work out in an organization because all they wanted to do was everything themselves. And they didn't understand that we are one team working together and you have to build everybody up. You have to continue to reinvest back into the system because as the system grows and as the team is helping to build that system, the organization is getting stronger and stronger. Hmm. How do you think about managing non-performance? What do those conversations look like for you? Uh, Quick and fast. We have we kind of have a no tolerance policy when it comes to our core values. So you're either going to act in, in the core values of the company or we, you just can't work at the company long term. We, uh, in the last probably three months, we've implemented a bonus structure where pretty much half of our property managers compensation now is based on a, a bonus compensation plan that directly correlates with, you know, how the owner performs based on, you know, our occupancy, um, your collections rate, uh, you know, getting five-star reviews for the company, and then we have a subjective piece in there. So with that, it's a monthly payout. We use those bonus programs to offer just continuous monthly feedback uh, to, to the different property managers and how they're growing and performing in the organization. We do six-month and 12-month annual reviews um, or biannual reviews with the staff uh, where we're giving them clear feedback on on how they're performing. Our vision is to even take that a step further and have weekly uh, one-on-one meetings uh, where we're talking to our staff about, uh, you know, what what have they accomplished this week? What are their plans, their goals for the week uh, to help keep them on that right path? Heck, I just read uh, a book that was fascinating called The Dream Manager. <laughs> I don't know. Have you heard of it, read of it? Yeah, I've read it, yeah. Uh, I thought the concept of it was absolutely fascinating. So in our minds, I'm really mulling through like, how, how, what does that look like? How could we incorporate something like that? And I, I just thought the whole concept of of that book just really resonated. Uh, when we first started the company, uh, we, we kind of went into the business and we said, hey, it is our mission and our purpose to enhance the quality of life of the people that we serve. Mm. And that was not just our uh, owners, that was our vendors, that was our residents, that was our employees, that was people in our community. Like anybody that we touch base with or, or work with, I mean, that has any relationship with us should be better off because of that. And that's how we have to measure ourselves day in and day out. And uh, we really want to take that next level of how are we doing that back within our staff as well. In that book, The Dream Manager, I believe the author's name is Matthew Kelly, but he outlines specifically in the context of a janitorial services company, building out plans, a program, and asking people, where do you want to go? Mm -hmm. And what it's flipping on its head is the idea that it's just just a job. You Mm -hmm. know, my experience is if you think it's just a job, it is. And if you think it's something more, it could be something more. But when there's collaboration and really care flowing down from the top, from the employer to ask, how can we invest in our people, knowing that that will come back? It looks like, and I do experience it to some degree to be like altruism, but it's altruism that comes back. Like it, it drives performance. When I hear you talk about that sports team orientation, it's exciting to me when it's bound and held with a deep level of care for people, believing that that care 
comes back to you directly. I mean, it's a direct refining cycle. Mm -hmm. When you think about what care looks like for your team members, um, let's say when people are in a moment of crisis, they're having a hard day. What do your coaching conversations look like? They're not just corrective, like, hey, you screwed up, do better. What do um, coaching conversations look like that are helping people to upskill and to achieve their goals and wants and desires? For us, it's really important that our team always understands that even when they don't feel it, that we care and we love them to death and we want the absolute best for them. Uh, we, we we like to steal things from people all the time uh, in great companies. And uh, Daniel uh, Craig at Profit Coach has a, has a saying with his staff that to, we're going to, it's our mission to help you achieve uh, more in yourself than you ever thought possible. And so we're always going to take great things from great people. And so we've been talking to our staff about that is it's our goal and our mission to help you achieve more than you ever thought possible. And the only way that we can do that is to be very direct with our feedback to you, but know that there is great care and concern on the back end. It's all about any message can be delivered in any way. Um, you can give a, a, a difficult message to somebody with care and compassion on the back end and belief in them that, that they can achieve. No different than a great parent would to their kid. Great parents don't not discipline their children, mm-hmm. but at the back end, the, the child always knows the love and the care that the parent has. Even in that moment, they may not like it. And you know, our, our great employees in the moment when they, when they have to have that difficult conversation, they don't feel it. But you know, a day or two goes by and they've had chances to reflect. They can they they are always able to see the bigger picture and realize, oh, I know they really care about me. They are they were right in these scenarios, and I can trust them that they have my best interest at heart. You mentioned previously that you sit on the accounting and finance side as well, correct? Correct. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that department is structured and set up? Yeah. So that has basically been uh, me and we have kind of a bookkeeper and then we really utilize all of the automations and technology that Appfolio has in place, which is pretty fascinating. But we are huge believers in uh, creating budgets uh, that match your business plan and your budget tells your you know story financially. Uh, that matches exactly what that business plan is. Uh, and then we measure ourselves very, very closely to that budget each and every month. Uh, so we're able to just run those reports. Uh, Jason and I will sit down monthly, we'll review that budget to uh, actual, uh, what variances did we occur? Why did that occur? Is that an anomaly? Did we plan for that? Uh, and I just think that's so vital as you're scaling in any business uh, that you really, really understand your financials and that you already had a plan for the year and that budget reflects that plan. Awesome. Tell me a little bit more about like the breakout of what's in that budget. So we converted to the NARPM accounting standards uh, probably about a year ago at this time. And so, I mean, it's, it's got every last line item that you're going to have. I mean, if, if anyone's seen it I would and hasn't done it, I would strongly recommend that they get on that. Um, it, it just makes it very, very clear and concise is what you're looking at and where all your spend is going. We spend a lot of time specifically if it's going to be another revenue stream, what does that revenue stream look like? When are we going to roll it out? What is going to be the adoption rate from month, from month one to month two to month three to month four? Uh, and then you have to plan that and you slowly build that into your budget. Same from a staffing standpoint. And this is big that we're really going through right now is we want to scale is, hey, when do we add that next employee? What month is it going to be? I mean, that's, it's that level of detail that we're breaking it down to hey, we're not just hiring three people next year. It's what month are we planning on hiring them uh, and so on and so forth. What's that recruiting budget look like to bring them in, putting that into the budget? I mean, what furniture are you buying for their office, their computer? All of that has to be added in and that level of detail and thought. Now, how do you bring that lower to the ground and involve staff in that conversation to be aware of the impact of their day-to-day decisions? 
we haven't done a very good job of that, to be frank and to be honest. Uh, that is something that is strictly lived at uh, the level with Jason and I, and, and we've been having more and more conversations of if we truly are going to build a business that sustains and is protected without us, we have to start thinking about how we're bringing that management team into a, more of an understanding of the financial outlook and the financial picture. We just have started to try to uh, pull some principles from traction and and use some of those concepts within the business where we're starting to share with the, not only with the three-year, five-year vision is, but also what the financials look like with it. Especially when you're in small business, there's just natural fears that you have that by sharing what your finances look like and your profitability, are you going to in turn alienate your staff and uh, create uh, resentment based on the profitability of the business and what you're paying them as a fair wage? Uh, and so we're we're kind of battling that. But I, I do think that uh, we've got a wonderful team that will embrace that and see the opportunities within that and then the opportunities that that will create as we add more locations and more opportunity that they see a very financially stable organization. How do you handle auditing of the books to check for things like uncollected fees and uncollected revenue? So the way our management agreements are set up is those the, the most outstanding charge gets paid first and then it kind of moves down the list. So if they had outstanding ancillary charges, that charge gets paid first before that next month's rent. Um, And that's just how our management agreements are written, as well as our lease contracts, which ensures that we're still getting compensated from the ancillary fee standpoint. And I think even more specifically, there are times when a property manager will choose in their own judgment and wisdom not to enforce a fee that is a part of the property management agreement. Mm -hmm. That can be a tricky issue. How do you handle that specifically? Yeah. So that was uh, one of the biggest reasons why we created our bonus program and how we created it. So the bonus program, the property manager's bonus potential is built around the management fee revenue or all of the uh, different ways that we make money from the resident and from the owner. Uh, That determines their bonus potential. (laughs) Uh, So there's a direct correlation that the property manager is going to want to ensure that the terms of the lease are properly enforced, the terms of the management agreement are in place, uh, and they're constantly evaluating each one of their owners to make sure that based on the level of work that they're having to do for that owner, that we're properly justifying uh, what charges or what that that monthly charge is going to be for that owner. So you're just aligning incentives essentially. Mm -hmm. Yep. Got it. And what kind of leeway do you give property managers in being able to flag an owner and say, hey, this person is abusive, difficult, unprofitable to work with, et cetera. What does that feedback loop look like? Yeah. So we're, we're actually in the process of building it out right now. Um, and we've kind of had a lot of conversations with them that we want to get rid of kind of our, our bottom 5% of owners each year that are just causing us the most headache and concern. And we've done it a little bit last year. We're going to do it more this year. And we're going to have, you know, probably 10 to 15 owners that just we're going to say, hey, thanks. It was great working with you. Here's a referral for another company to work with, but we don't think you're the right fit. Um, and we want the staff to start bringing those forward. I've heard some really great uh, recommendations from from different uh, PM companies lately where as we set different uh, growth targets or, or objectives for the year, um, that that gives them then the green light that the staff can vote on the next owner that has to go. And and it's serious. Like Owners have to respect us as much as we respect them. Um, and we're not... We would never allow an owner to talk to our staff in a way like it, that they wouldn't say directly to us um, or, or talk to their wife or their kids in that way as well. Like we, we want people that have kind hearts, that, that, that have the best intentions in mind and care about others. And if we have owners that truly don't ever display that, uh, those principles, we're, we're going to make a decision that it's not the right fit. I mean, life is too short to work with people that uh, are going to make you miserable. <laughs> 
Let's end it here. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about property management, what would it be? Ah, oh, man, that's a powerful question. You end every episode like that? <laughs> it depends. Not always. <laughs> I would love to just change the uh, the stigma and the stereotype of the industry. I, I think too often that our industry is is viewed as people that don't know what they're doing, that, that the level of uh, service that you get relative to the expense is not worth it. I just think that's uh, so far from being true when you deal with a true expert. Uh, and, and we would love to see more and more uh, really great professional companies come into the space and really elevate it. Uh, we, we are huge believers in that, that basic principle that the rising tide raises all ships. And we would love to see uh, that happen within the property management industry as well. I appreciate you coming on, sharing your story, and I'm wishing you a lot of success here in the future. Hey, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure to be here. Until next time. Yep. See ya. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can check out other episodes along the way. If you're watching this on YouTube, appreciate to subscribe. Any comments, I'm always here to engage. If you're listening on an audio platform, would really appreciate a review. It's a great way to help other people find out about the show.